Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Professor Rick Mazels. He's a professor of parasitology, University of Glasgow, over in Scotland. Rick, thanks for coming. Oh, it's a pleasure. Yeah, tell me about your research. Why Why are you interested in parasites? What got you interested in it so long ago? And, you know, they will ask you what you're working on now. Well, long, long ago, I got interested in parasites because they seem to be the great uh, neglected area of, uh, of, of medicine. Uh, millions of people infected in the poorest places, the poorest countries. And I felt um, research was sorely uh, needed in these areas. And as, so I was looking at things like vaccines, etc. And over time, it became clear also that there was an astonishing reciprocal uh, relationship between the presence and the uh, prevalence of parasites, specifically worm parasites, which we call helminths. So the prevalence of these helminths was inversely related to the uh, epidemiological presence of allergies and autoimmune disorders, implying that somehow parasites were able to dampen or control some of the um, what we call diseases of modernity. In other words, the diseases that have become more and more rampant in the uh, more affluent countries, the, the countries of the better uh, standard of living and standard of hygiene that don't suffer parasite infections. So that's really when been. Did, when did this um, this swap appear to happen, or this trade off, the diseases of modernity? Has it been fifty well, years, hundred years? Yeah, I'd say it's it's more that those diseases have become reached a, a crisis point in the uh, developed world in the 1950s onwards. So even the 1950s, they weren't so bad. So if you go 50s, 60s, 70s they were getting more and more dominant. But of course, it doesn't quite match the loss of parasites because that happened earlier in most of the Western world. But it certainly is true that the presence of the parasites seems to be holding off those diseases in the poorer countries. So, so parasites actually are, are, I guess, in a way, like a dog guarding a bone. They, <laughs> they help prevent other diseases. Like, What's an example? Well, well that, that was the indication. And of course, it's very, very hard to draw those hard conclusions from epidemiological correlations. And, you know, the poorer countries have uh, fewer television sets and fewer McDonald's restaurants, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, you can reach quite wrong conclusions uh, 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 just by correlation. So uh, my lab and a number of others uh, really uh, got involved in trying to establish, was there a causal link? Did one thing lead to another? Did the presence of the parasite actually protect um, against allergies? And we were able to show that in, in, in laboratory animals, they were, they were protected. If they had a parasite infection, they didn't show allergy. What kind of parasites and what kind of allergens? Oh, okay. So broad the, spectrum was the protection. Yeah. So it was, um, I mean, these are limited uh, studies, just point of principle, proof of principle, I'd say. That, so w- what sort of parasites? We looked at worm parasites that were in the intestinal tract. 
So these are relatively harmless parasites to, to humans and animals. Uh, they're very, very, um, pre very prevalent. Hundreds of millions of people have them. And the animals with these worm parasites in, in the intestinal tract, uh, they showed protection from allergic reactions to house dust mite, which is what humans are, um, develop allergy to, and that's linked to asthma. So a tenuous link, but nevertheless, we were able to show causality. That was the important thing. That they, they, these, these two areas of science, parasite infection and allergy, were actually related. And that, that was a, a, um, a really important breakthrough. And then from that point, we started saying, well, how? You know, how could this possibly be? And we're carrying out a number of immunological studies. So looking at the different white blood cells in, in animals. And then other people looking at similar cells in human populations. And there's a common thread, which is a type of cell we all have that is called a regulatory T cell. And this T cell um, is the, so that, that's the policeman. You, you talked about the dog and the bone. This is the this is the good cop of the immune system because the regulatory T cell makes sure that the immune response doesn't go into overdrive, doesn't over overexpress, doesn't start attacking our own tissues, or in the case of allergy, doesn't start attacking um, innocuous, irrelevant, extraneous substances like the house dust mite, which has no specific threat to human health other than when we become allergic to it. So do, we, do you think that when there's a parasite in someone, the immune system is kept busy with that parasite? Yes. Yeah, so what do you think arguments. that it's coming... Yeah, what if it's coming yeah, from yeah, the parasite? So one is, yeah, the devil makes work for idle hands. So it might be if we live in too clean an environment, uh, the immune system's got nothing else to do but to turn on ourselves. That's feasible, although that, that's something that hasn't really been shown you know, in any formal scientific manner. Uh, the other is, right. is, is the parasite uh, manipulating the immune system? Does the parasite decide, well, if we can pour cold water on the immune system, it's not going to throw, throw us out? And uh, unknowingly, then the parasite might then also be dampening responses to allergy. That we do have formal scientific evidence that that's going on. So that's not to exclude the, the first uh, scenario, but certainly there is chain of command from the parasite that interferes with the immune system, protects the parasite from being expelled, and as a bystander effect, reduces the intensity of the response to allergies. Well, a way to test this in animals would be to give them a parasite and expose them to allergens, but expose them to more and more allergens and see if you expose them to 20 of them and they have immunity to all 20, well, that tells you something. If they only have immunity to a certain few, then you could look and say, what's the commonality between the few? So did the, yes. did the experimentation yes. go that far? We, we could do that. I, I think, actually, the way I'm thinking about it is that parasites restrain the immune system. They don't switch it off. So I, th I think if you were to throw uh, incessant levels of, of allergens at a human or an animal, they would become allergic. You'd overcome the effect of the parasite. So the parasites are just pulling the level of reactivity down a little bit, but that little bit can be below a threshold. So then there's no uh, manifestation of allergy. I'm fairly sure if you if you th threw everything at the immune system, it would uh, you'd overcome it. And probably that happens in nature. So that probably what happens in nature is 
there's a sort of uneasy balance where the parasite's able to establish itself in the human or the animal and various environmental triggers or circumstances can boost the immune system and, and people can spontaneously clear the parasites. This happens. So what I'm saying is that there's, there's a balance. The parasites tweak it for, to their advantage. It doesn't guarantee their success. But it, it increases their odds of staying. Um, we can, the, our body can sometimes overcome that, sometimes not. Whether or not you overcome it can be strongly influenced by other environmental factors. So it might be another oh. infection comes along and, and, and causes an inflammation, and that inflammation can be enough to get rid of the parasite. So there's, there's, it's a really complex inter interaction going on here. We try to reduce oh. it down to, some, to something more simple. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're still talking in somewhat generalities. I mean, there's many yeah. kinds of helminth infections. So what are the particular ones that you've studied? And then I want to ask you about the mechanism of action and infection. Okay. And, yeah. yeah, yeah. well, we, we, we spend a lot of time studying a very common parasite of mice that's found in pretty much more, well, more than 50% of wild mice and lives a long time in mice. And so this, this guy understands mice better than any human understands mice. Uh, he's very able to manipulate the mouse immune system. And that, but we're in close touch with colleagues who are studying hookworm, which is a um, human parasite and is a, as a cousin of the mouse one, essentially. And a lot of what we find in the mouse parasite seems to be hold true for the human one although of course you can't do you can't do too many experimental infections of humans but remarkably people volunteer should i go into this i mean people are volunteering to be deliberately infected with hookworm um okay and is that is that okay or or do the irb still cry that that's unacceptable um, it's, it's very uh, rigorously controlled the doses are very small there's a drug that clears the parasite if, uh, as soon as somebody wants to leave the trial. Um, and uh, most of the people involved have some immunological disorder and feel that this is a reasonable attempt to try and cure that disorder. So these trials are going on. I can't point to um, any publication yet that will say that it's conclusively beneficial. But it's quite clear that um, some individuals feel they uh, they have dampened and abated their symptoms by becoming infected with these hookworms. It's quite empirical, and it, it, it's really hard to pin down what the pathway might be. And that, that's, maybe that's the question you're coming to next: is how do we get at the, the uh, mechanism or the, the principles? Well, let's, that, yeah. yeah, let's go into hookworms. So, so there has been an experiment where people were deliberately infected. And then yeah. what specific uh, issues results for them or allergens were prevented? It's actually mostly been done with um, people with in intestinal disorders, so celiac disease, which is the insensitivity to mm. gluten, and um, uh, ulcerative colitis, which is like a more of an autoimmune disease. And so the people have looked and said, okay, the, the degree of inflammation is reduced and the numbers of these regulatory T cells is increased in, in different settings and diff different individuals. Humans are very, um, you know, fickle and variable individuals. So this this seems to work in some people and not in others. That causes statistical problems because it's hard to prove that there's a you know, like a, a, a constant effect across the board. So it's still controversial. Is it something that certain people will benefit from, others won't, or is it is it noise? You know, we don't know yet. What we do know is there's a lot of um, parallels between the mouse parasite and the 
uh, human one, which boils down even to the level of the uh, different molecules that the parasites express. And that's been our lead into the next phase. So what we're doing is we're looking at how the parasite releases products, and those products may influence the immune system. Well, firstly, the, hmm? the hookworm, it stays as just one worm, or there are multiple worms, and yeah, do they so, sit uh, adjacent to cells? Like, where do they go in the body and, and rest and stay? They go into the intestinal tract, the small intestine, and they embed themselves in the, just in the epithelium, the layer of cells, which is the barrier between the body and the... Uh, lumen, the open part of the gut. And the hookworm themselves, the hook part of the hookworm, literally digs into the epithelial tissue and they suck blood from the tissue. That's why the dose of the hookworm is very important because a high dose would cause anemia. A low dose is safe. So then what they, uh, what is remarkable is they invade the body and yet the body doesn't reject them. Yeah, so I mean, I mean, there's another parallel I like to right. call, to draw, which is... Um, you or I would reject a skin graft from our sibling unless we happen to have an identical twin. So our immune system is that sensitive to the slightest difference. And yet these helminth worms, these tiny little animals, uh, are evolutionarily hundreds of millions of years distant from us. They can walk in, take up residence, and we don't reject them. So they're overwriting the rules of the immune system somehow. And how are they doing that? Well, in part, we have found some of the solutions. We've found one product, for example, from these parasites that expands this type of cell I was mentioning earlier, the policeman, the regulatory T cell. So the regulatory T cell that normally protects us from autoimmunity and allergy and inflammatory bowel disease is being expanded and exploited by the parasite. So then we don't reject the parasite. So this is our, this is our um, model. Um, we've found a protein from the parasite that directly uh, binds to these reg- to T cells and turns them into regulatory T cells. So the, the parasite's talking directly to the immune system, the human immune system or the mouse immune system, and instructing it to, ex- to make more regulatory T cells. Oh, I'm sure this is not the whole story, but it certainly is something which pulls together both the observations on how parasites might dampen allergy and the, the conundrum of how such a foreign body can, can establish a niche in, the, in our cells and not be rejected. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Well, are there, when you have a hookworm infection, are there multiple hookworms or just one big one? No, there are multiple ones. And um, there are also other helminth species. Uh, but interestingly, it does seem to be that um, having a hookworm infection doesn't predispose you to more of the other parasites. So there, this is what I'm saying. What we've found isn't the whole story because there is something specific about each parasite as well. You'd expect that. I mean, no, no species is altruistic and is going to benefit every other species. So there'll be something about the hookworm that uh, favours the hookworm itself and not the others. We haven't, come, we haven't dug down to that level yet. I think we're still at the, the generality, like the, the big picture of what's going on between the parasites and the immune system. Well, if there's multiple hookworms that infect, um, have you ever tried to sequence a population of them and looked for the differences amongst them? And if so, what do those differences show you? You know, like if you think of a colony of bees, worker bees, drones, et cetera, they all have the phenotype B, and they all work together, but they're all different. 
Yeah. Perhaps in hookworms for successful infection, maybe you have the same thing going on. I don't know. It could be. It could be you have like a pioneer population that get in there first and condition the immune system and make the immune system more tolerant to others. That's, that's um, again, uh, uh, no evidence, but entirely possible. Um, and that might explain why. Because uh, well, one, one of the... One of the points that isn't really understood yet is that the regulatory T cell is not very specific. It's it's generic. It dampens the immune system across the board. And yes, we see that because allergy is dampened, but but the parasites themselves don't suppressing the immune response, the specific immune response to the parasite as well as this generic dampening across the board. So there's different levels of immune suppression. I think we've found the one, we haven't found the um, the more specific one. And the more specific one might work, as I'm just discussing, by inducing specific tolerance to the hookworm that then allows more hookworms to, to establish. That doesn't quite, doesn't quite uh, gel with your question where you're, you're asking more about, well, are there different subsets or different uh, different worms fulfilling different roles yeah there's no morphological evidence for that I, I, I haven't really thought about that before but i haven't seen anything that would be consistent with that well when you do the controlled infection you know is one little hookworm enough to infect somebody or you have to yeah, I think put they, a bunch of them like, yeah they look use something like 15 15 to 20 that sort of number and um, they can see them in the individuals by colonoscopy or endoscopy rather and they're distributed in the small intestine so it is yeah it's quite a phenomenon they haven't either reported any sort of heterogeneity that that there's taking different shapes or invading different places they seem to seem to be quite homogeneous well do they undergo reproduction inside of uh yes Yes, Yes, yeah, so the um, sexual or asexual? Exactly, the sexual. So the little animals, the males and females, they get together, and the females produce hundreds or thousands of eggs, and the eggs are passed out in the feces. So in, um, so there's no transmission directly from one human to another. In countries where the sanitation isn't controlled, um, if the fecal material gets into the environment. The eggs can hatch and uh, form little larvae. And this is very sort of um, extraordinary. So the larvae will migrate, for example, to the tip of a blade of grass. And then if a human goes past without uh, covering, then they'll latch onto the skin and invade through the skin. So that's uh, so so where, for example, kids are running around barefoot, that's much more likely to happen. Um, and, you know, the hookworm actually was endemic in the southern U.S. In, until the late 30s. Oh, what assumed, happened to it? it? Well, it was eradicated by um, partly uh, sanitation improvements and then a big campaign to make sure uh, kids wore shoes because that was the major route of, of infection. That was one of the, one of the first uh, Rockefeller in, in, initiatives was uh, to, to eradicate hookworm in, in the U.S. south. Interesting. Yeah. So you know already that they're uh, they're upregulating, or they're changing how T cells function in the body. And then what what do you suppose the purpose of that is? Oh, I think it's it's to dampen and, and repress the ability of the immune system to expel the parasite. So they're not being altruistic. It's clearly totally self interested. Um, but we're just recording some of the side effects, uh, which in this case are actually generally beneficial because they counteract some of the inflammatory reactions that otherwise would occur oh i'm sure they're not doing it right just for the good of the (laughs) the host they're doing it for themselves but 
So what else do they uh, have they been found to do? Or we haven't found you haven't found anything else yet that they're doing to the immune system? Oh, do they, that's it. Well, do they put yeah. out like extracellular vesicles? You know, yes, yes, definitely been observed yeah, yeah. and characterized. Yes, so we have a whole project on that, and they almost like guided missiles, right? So they seem to be able to home into host cells, walk straight into the host cell, release um, a ton of material that interferes with gene expression in the host. So it's both complicated, uh, but also likely to be highly significant. And then it's actually the focus of a vaccine project, because what we're trying to do is generate antibodies to these vesicles. And the idea being that if you can block the vesicles with the antibodies, um, you take out the entire package. Yeah, so it's not just neutralizing one component. Everything in the vesicle can be neutralized if we can generate antibodies to the uh, exterior surface of the vesicle. So this is this is something we're just getting involved in. I can mention something quite different, not a different sort of theme, and that is. You've got these parasites, they migrate, like the hookworm goes through the skin, goes and finds its way through the lung and, and then down the esophagus to the intestinal tract, and then it bites into the intest- intestinal wall. So, you know, they're quite invasive and um, potentially very destructive organisms. So the idea is, well, perhaps as well as inducing these regulatory T-cells, another trick up their sleeve is some form of wound repair, or at least soothing the damage they've made. And you can see that, okay, so the hookworm, if it makes a hole in the intestinal tract, doesn't actually want uh, bacteria to walk in and um, start infecting the host because that jeopardizes the uh, lifespan of the, of the parasite. So to cut that story short, we're looking for potential wound healing materials from the parasite. We have a little bit of evidence that they do modify the, the niche they're in, in a way that promotes the homeostasis, in other words, repair and keeping the uh, integrity of the tissue that they're in, in best pe- best possible shape. Again, not entirely altruistic, but then has uh, some benefits for the host as well as the parasite. So they're snacking and then repairing and snacking yes. and repairing? Yeah, yeah. It's like they're putting the lid back on after they've taken a, a fill. <laughs> When they when they colonize someone's intestine that has you know colitis or Crohn's or whatever you know maladies you're talking about, yeah, yeah. what's the condition of the epithelium before they colonize it, and then after, what does it look like? Like, what's the difference, and what does it tell you? Yeah, I don't think there's enough really to go on yet on that because obviously to, to do that you've got to have quite invasive sort of monitoring and biopsy biopsies etc. And you can't really tell whether improvement in the in, intestinal condition is that because there's less immune response damaging it, or is it something directly coming from the worm? So I think that's where probably the animal studies are better in terms of we can be more reductionist. We can take individual products of the parasite, or we can look at much closer time frames, or we could look at what happens in animals that have uh, impaired immune systems might nevertheless have physical damage to the, to the intestinal tract so that you can take the immune system out of the equation. I think it's a really good question. I don't think we're ready to answer that one yet. Yeah. Interesting. So what's, um, I mean, what are some of the other experimentations and things you're looking at in regards to the hookworms? Well, I suppose it falls into those categories. We've got a products from parasites that expand the regulatory T cells. And then the idea is, can we use those products in some sort of therapy for inflammatory diseases? So that's, that's can we learn from parasites and mimic parasites without actually forcing patients to be to become infected with a parasite 
to cure them. So that's that's one area. The one I mentioned also is the vaccine area, because I suppose ethically, at the end of the day, you don't only want to take uh, learn a lesson from the parasites and apply it to the affluent countries. You also want to help the poorer countries deal with their health problem, which is parasites. So can we develop a vaccine that would help to clear the parasites from um, the endemic countries? So those two things, I think, are the, are the two ambitions that we've got. I, th- I think um, otherwise we're interested in whether we'll find new uh, wound healing products or new products that will um, help in other areas of medicine. And I think the, 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 the book is open. I mean, every, every year we're finding uh, new aspects and new vistas that make us think, well, perhaps something from the parasite will be um, interesting. For example, um, they, see, they seem to affect the metabolism of the host. So then is, is that, again, is that maybe a consequence of changing the immune system because the immune system and the metabolism are closely linked? Or is it because they're releasing metabolites, small molecules uh, that are somehow re- rewriting our met- metabolic level? There's, and there's, there's evidence that there is an effect. We don't know yet what the root of that effect is. So I'd say keep an open mind. There's plenty of um, other consequences of parasite infection, uh, good and bad, that we need to be able to dissect out. And maybe from that, we can uh, define specific products or specific tools that we can then use in, in, in a beneficial manner for both endemic countries and the countries suffering from these modern diseases. Yeah, last, last question or two. What happens to people that uh, have hookworm and they don't get treated? Well, um, on the whole, it's, it, it doesn't seem to compromise lifespan. Um, some of the other parasites, like schistosomiasis, is much worse because of um, it, it causes fibrosis in the liver. And there's a disease called river blindness, which is very serious in, in terms of life shortening because uh, once people lose their sight, um, their economic status is uh, is very dire but hookworm doesn't seem to be that serious in terms of a low level of infection for a long period of time seems to be well tolerated um, where, where you get high levels of infection uh, anemia occurs and so obviously that's a, a medically important situation and it's also very uh, deleterious in children and I think the, the effect on children is more at the level of um, growth retardation deprivation of nutrients and essentials um, and it seems that again this is recent evidence that kids with high levels of helmet infections don't do so well at school so there's scholastic deficiency um, and it may be very hard for them to catch up so there's a lot of uh, socioeconomic reasons as well as medical reasons for focusing on the children uh, which indeed is, is going on there's a huge drug donation programs by some of the big pharma companies where the, the drugs to clear the, the helmet parasites are being donated to um, to the medical systems of the poorer countries. So it's a, it's a big priority. And I think the fact that the hookworm doesn't necessarily shorten life um, is no reason not to treat it in, in communities generally. Well, if someone has a, uh, a chronic condition, you know, Crohn's or IBD or whatever it is, yeah. are they better off with hookworm instead? Um, well, I think hookworm alone is better than IBD alone. No doubt about that. The question is whether a combination of hookworm and, uh, and IBD is better than IBD alone, and that is t- very unproven. And of course, we we have to have to recognise that um, you know humans are very variable, 
and there may not be a single answer to that question. In other words, it may be, may be better for some people and worse for others. And we don't yet understand how we could distinguish those groups of where it would be beneficial or detrimental. So I think that uh, book is open. Very good, Rick. What's the best way for people to find out more about your research and if they would just love to get infected by hookworm? You know, uh, I, I'm not a physician and I'm not running hookworm trials. I know, I'm teasing. Um, I'm teasing. So yeah, yeah. Um, but I do know a few people who are, so I can put people in touch with them. Then I think, I mean, I've got a little website, which is uh, mazelslab.com. Onward.org. Um, and I've got a little bit of information on that. I'm trying to build that up because I think there is a lot of interest and um, I like like to make it accessible to everybody regardless of you know, whether they're scientifically trained or not, because I think this area so has a lot of intrinsic interest to everybody and, of course, specific interest to people who think it you know, might be important for their own condition. Okay. Well, very good. Rick, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Well, thank you for inviting me. Enjoyed talking. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.